Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey, hey, hey. But if y'all waiting on me to apologize, hell gonna freeze. Uh, wait. <laughs> Tonight at the main event, what do we have? Who do we have? You know what it is. It's Taco Tuesday. It's another edition of the Points in the Pain podcast presented by Stadium. Ben Wittenstein with you. At Badger House, of course. Of course, of course. You can find us anywhere that you find your podcasts, whether it be Spotify, Apple Podcasts, uh, Stitcher. We are absolutely everywhere, Zach. You can also follow us on Twitter. Uh, Zach, what's our what's our username again on Twitter? <laughs> at Points Paint, baby. At Points Paint. You can follow us at Points Paint for all of the episode updates. We usually also post snippets of stuff we talk about occasionally on on twitter you can follow stadium on twitter um as well for all the stadium content but zach let's turn to the nba lots of nba series going on the uh, conference semifinals four series uh but let's start with the milwaukee bucks for our first of the big three the big three and i wanted to talk to milwaukee bucks first because i think this is probably the most surprising series so far i think we could agree just simply because they came extraordinarily close to being swept by the Miami Heat. They went down 3-0, and on Sunday they won their game without Giannis to go 3-1. And you were texting me last night after this series. You said, you have to believe that Milwaukee can come back and win this series. <laughs> so my question to you is, how much belief do you actually have that the Bucks can come back and win this series? Okay, so listen, you know how we record this podcast on a Monday, and happy Labor Day, too. So they're going to play on Tuesday when this podcast releases. So I'm just going to say that I'm really not too confident. I had to, if I had to put it on a percentage scale, it'd probably be, I'm about, I'm about 40%, 50% that they can win, you know, game five. <laughs> like they, I got like 50% in me and that's probably like just a fan in Giannis for me. But if he can play and if he can be at least 60%, then I can give him a shot. I mean, you just got to see what Chris Middleton is going to do. If he's going to go out there and play 40, 42 minutes or 43 minutes and go all out and, you know, for them to try to win that game and see how much production he can have. And they got to really stop the catch and shooting from the Miami Heat. That's been burning them in this series the entire time. Yeah, and we're not sure right now if Giannis is going to play or not. He was obviously out the second half of that Heat game. But for whatever reason, what Jimmy Butler said is the team kind of relaxed when Giannis went out. But, I mean, the Bucks' offense looked weirdly a little bit better, a little bit more cohesive without Giannis on the court. Now, that doesn't mean Giannis, like the Bucks are not better without Giannis. But it was just interesting to see that the Bucks were able to figure some things out on offense. Bledsoe played a little bit better. And, I mean, he hasn't really been very good this whole series. But it was really Chris Middleton that stepped up. He had a big shot towards that end of the game to give them the lead and, and extend the lead. And they just looked a little bit more smooth, a little bit more cohesive on the offensive side of the ball without Giannis. Well, yeah, they were just basically able to just spread the ball out a little more. The guys off the bench was able to get involved a little more. Dante DiVincenzo, he he did pretty good off the bench, scoring double figures. It's obviously, George Hill came off the bench, too, and gave him a lift, splitting those minutes between uh, Wesley Matthews and uh, George Hill. And so, and then Marvin Williams gave them some productive minutes too, as well. And so, yeah, they were just able to just go a little further into their bench and extend some minutes with, you know, with Giannis being out, you know, basically in the second half. But you got to look at Giannis only playing like 11 minutes and he scored 19 points. So, and he shot 80%. So he was trying to, you know, get the surge 
and get the lift of this team going as much as he could before he went down with the ankle injury. It's funny, too, because everyone I've talked to about this series and, and you watch Miami for, you know, three, four, five games in a row. And they weren't really a team that I think a lot of people, you know, watched a ton during the regular season. But when you watch them now, you just see how well coached they are. You just see how good Spolster is as a, as a coach, as an in-game coach, as a strategical coach. I mean, this is just an incredibly well-coached team. They're very balanced. And they make adjustments really well to the teams that they're playing. And, I mean, it's hard to argue right now that Spolstra, if he's not the best coach in the league, he's absolutely top three at the moment. Yeah, he's definitely top three. And you got to obviously talk about Nick Nurse with him being coach of the year. And everybody loves Brad Stevens and what he's able to do offensively with the Boston Celtics. And so, yeah, I, I can't count out Spo. And a lot of people, even going back to, you know, LeBron days and, people questioned whether or not Spo was going to be able to coach the big three. And he coached them to two championships and took them to four straight. And then after that, able to even keep Miami relevant and keep them in the playoffs, you know, and now we look at them, they're one game away from the Eastern conference finals. And so here we are with coach Spo and he's got young guys out there playing extremely hard for him and playing with a lot of confidence. Duncan Robinson playing with so much confidence had 20 points the last game and made six of his 12 three. So, you know, that just says a lot about, you know, coach, coach Boster. All right, how how worried should we be about the Bucks? They're probably not going to win the series, as you said. I mean, is this what changes does this team need? They gave up Malcolm Brogdon last season, and it's looking like they really need Brogdon this year, especially the a guy you know that can do forty or fifty, forty, ninety, uh, and, and someone who can facilitate really well. They have that a little bit in George Hill, but Brogdon really is that guy that they need to run the offense. It, it, what you know, what additions do they need? to be able to be the dominant team that we kind of expected them to be for the rest of the season. It's a mental thing for me, man. It's like, it's not necessarily if they need pieces of the pieces they have just need to be better. So like Chris Middleton, the performance that he had the last game, he needs to have that mentality all the time. If Giannis goes out, let's say Giannis isn't hurt and he just goes to the bench. Like Chris Middleton has to know that he's an all-star and he's supposed to be the man. And we've been saying that countless, countless times on this podcast about how Chris Middleton needs to be better. And he does. And I hear all the, I hear all the noise about how he's, he doesn't deserve the money that he received over the summer. And I, and people always say, I wouldn't have gave him that amount of money because he doesn't produce very well. And it's starting to really show, but up until last night, you know, that desperation game, you know, so he has to play like that from night in and night out. I mean, you have two all-stars, so it's capable. It has to be done. And then, like, I look at it like this, too. Coach Bo- Coach Mike, like, he has to be better with Brooke Lopez. Like, if you – one minute he can give you 22 minutes and then uh, 22 points, and the next minute he only give you, like, 12 or 14. What type of position are you putting Brooke Lopez in if you're the Milwaukee Bucks coach for him to be more effective offensively? Yeah, he needs he needs just to be more consistent. He needs to be a better player because people expect him to be that number two guy. And there are nights where he just doesn't seem like he wants anything to do with being that number two. And Bledsoe is always going to be playoff Bledsoe. So, I mean, it's a team that, you know, on paper looks good. It looks like a team that could make a finals run. But when they start playing and Budenholzer just doesn't make any adjustments, which is bizarre. He makes bad defensive adjustments. He makes bad in-game substitution moves. They just become a little bit of an above average team who can keep themselves in games with their three point shooting. But if their threes aren't falling, it's it's they look like a sad team. And like you said, and I and I heard someone allude to this, too. Their half court offense is what really limits them. So if they're not running up and down the floor and scoring and transition and if, and if they're not making those threes, those kickout threes. then They're very limited to what they can do. Eric Bledsoe 0 for 6 from downtown the last game. I need at least two more of those just for you to be mentally confident to be able to take more shots. And the same thing with like Cal Culver. He's a sniper in terms of, you know, being able to knock the ball down from three point. You have to play him more minutes. And like the, some people is what I don't understand with these coaches. Like some people just refuse to pay attention to the rotations of these, of these coaches. Like, like last night watching the Lakers Houston game, which we'll talk about just like how, J.R. Smith and Deion Waiters just do not get any minutes. And those guys are capable of really being in the game and knocking down shots. Same thing with Milwaukee. You got Pat Connington. You got Kyle Culver. Kyle Culver played five minutes yesterday. That's a guy when Giannis goes out, he should be playing more minutes. Like He may be a liability a little bit on the defensive side, 
But you need someone to be able to match those catch and shoot threes that the Miami Heat are are taking and knocking down. All right, so let's go on to our second of the big three, Zach. The big three. And uh, this one is the Nuggets Clippers matchup, which you know initially kind of seemed like this was a throwaway. Everyone expected the Clippers to to dominate the Nuggets and maybe even sweep them at this point. But the Nuggets came out game two and they looked really good. It kind of looked like the Nuggets that we saw towards the beginning of this season where their defense was incredible and they really had a lot of options on the offensive side of the ball. Jokic played well. So I don't know if I necessarily expect the Nuggets to even make this a series, but I don't think it's going to be as easy as a lot of Clippers fans or people who back the Clippers think it may be. No, that's true. And you know, I got to give credit to what credit's due with Denver's defense. Like you said, they really shut down the Los Angeles Clippers on the offensive side. Like, they they really struggled. And I, and I mean Kawhi Leonard, too. Kawhi Leonard struggled. Paul George, he struggled. Lou Williams, he didn't do very well in the game, too. And so I, when I saw that they were – when the Denver Nuggets came out after getting punched in the mouth in game one, and like you said, people thought, oh, yeah, this may not be a, a series that may go too long – and they came back and fought back and fought hard and really said, okay, no, we're going to make this a series and tie this bad baby up before we even get to game three and we're down 0-2. We're going to tie it up even 1-1, and now we're going into game three. And I think they're going to have a lot of confidence going into this game too. And as long as they can just stay active defensively on Kawhi Leonard and Paul George and Lou Williams, which is easier said than done, then they'll have a shot to really be in the games. Because as long as they can keep the games tight, we still have to find out who's going to be that guy down the stretch in the playoffs outside of Kawhi Leonard for the Clippers. All right, let's talk about the Clippers offensive struggles because we know Kawhi, I think the Clippers at this point, it's safe to say, are going to go as far as Kawhi takes them. They're, he's he's their guy. He's the finals MVP. He's going to be the guy that leads him to a finals title if he plays well. And he did not play well in game two against the, against the Nuggets. They held him under 15 points, which was the first time he didn't score 15 points in a playoff game in a long time. Now, I don't expect him to to not score more than 15 for the rest of the series, but the Nuggets kind of figured out a little way to to keep him in check. But is this something they can do consistently, Zach? Because it doesn't seem like, you know, the Nuggets were a good defensive team to start the year, and they kind of lapsed. In the playoffs, they've been up and down defensively. But it's Kawhi Leonard. He's going to figure out ways to score for the rest of the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, despite being four of 17 from the field in game two and only getting to the line seven times, I think he just has to be more aggressive on the offensive side in terms of getting to the, uh, the strike. And he got to start talking to the refs a little more like the rest of these uh, players do. Start engaging with these refs and get some more calls because, you know, the claw, he's a little quiet out there. He doesn't really complain <laughs> to, that, to the refs or anything like that. So I think he needs to push to push the envelope a little bit so he can get some more calls like the rest of these superstars out here. Because seven free throws in a playoff game from a guy like Kawhi Leonard, which I know can, he can be more aggressive, that doesn't say too much for him. See, I want to see, I want to know if this game two of the Nuggets Clippers, did it worry you at all about the Clippers? Because we saw how poorly, and we'll talk about the Lakers in a moment, but we saw how poorly the Lakers played in game one against the Rockets and they came back game two, they won game two, but again, it was still relatively close and they let Houston back into it in that third quarter. So it seemed like to me that the Clippers at least, and I think still now are the favorite for me to win the championship. Did that game two loss to the Nuggets, did that worry you at all? Is that something that you're kind of wavering now if you did have the Clippers on there? Because for me, it didn't really do much. I know the Clippers are going to have bad games here and there. It's something that, that has happened to them all season. And I think their biggest strength is that they are dominant after losses. They come back and they are incredibly good after they lose games. So I'm not too worried about them. But I want to know from you, is it, is it something that you see and you're like, ooh, I'm a little bit worried now about how good the Clippers can be? As long as Jokic can stay patient in this series, and that's what's really been key. The key catalyst in that last game was how patient Jokic was. 26 points, 18 rebounds, four assists. He was very patient. So as long as he can stay patient in the half court and not allow the Clippers to get out and transition or make get easy buckets and you know make them play half court basketball as well and you know push the, and like push the envelope defensively in terms of you know forcing them to take those contested shots, contested three point shots. You know, Lou Williams forcing him to go right so he's not fading away to the left and knocking down the easy shot that he likes to get going to the left side, you know, things like that. And limiting Marcus Morris, you really got to limit Marcus Morris, you know, don't allow him to be catching and shooting and getting that confidence and keep Montrez Harold off the glass. 
All that is a lot, but <laughs> I think all of it can be done, and it'll put Denver in a better position in these games. So when it's tight, I think, you know, Denver can really hang because we've seen from this last series against the Utah Jazz that the Denver Nuggets do have some fights to compete in tight games. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't disagree with you there. I still think the Clippers are my favorite to win the title. I just, they have so many ways they can beat you. Their bench is so deep. And Doc Rivers is, he's always just going to be a solid coach. You know, he's always going to make pretty good moves uh, in game and he's going to plan pretty well defensively. So I don't think one game is indicative of what the Clippers can do, but it's certainly something that I think they should be a little bit worried about, but I don't really expect them to sweep every series. So they're going to, they're going to lose a couple games. That's the thing is I expect them to lose one or two games in these series. And I mean, the Nuggets, I know a lot of people waver on how good the Nuggets are, but They've shown that they are better the past, you know, five or six games that they've played. So they could be, it's a possible they can make this a series, but I mean, I just think the Clippers are going to, are going to probably dominate for the most part the rest of the way. Yeah, they probably will, but I'll at least give Denver one more game before the series is put away. Interesting. Is it, so do you, do you think it's going to be like a dominant performance? Is it going to be close and the Nuggets are going to like inch it out? The Nuggets are probably going to inch out one more game before the series is probably over, like, in six. So I'll probably still give the Clippers, you know, the 4-2, but I'll at least give the Nuggets one more game. Because it's the different Nuggets, and they'll play well, at least one more game. Jamal Murray and Jokic, I'll give them, give those guys at least one more game, especially Jokic. If he just stay patient offensively, I think they'll be fine. Yeah, I can't disagree with you there. Let's move on to the next series into the Eastern Conference with the Raptors and the Celtics. The big three. And I will admit, I will admit, after the first two games the Celtics played, <laughs> I absolutely thought they were going to just dominate the Raptors. And I I was pretty high on the Celtics coming Celtics coming into the series, and after their first two games, I they were almost my favorite to win the title because I just love the way they played. They're very balanced on the offensive side of the ball. They crack down defensively. They have a great coach who game plans really well. And now, and now Toronto has come back down 2-0. They hit the game-winning shot with OG. They win the next game, even the series up. I don't know where I stand with Boston. I still like them to win this series, but it's so hard to count Toronto out when you, when you know they're defending NBA Finals champions, and you know they have Nick Nurse, coach of the year, and they have a lot of weapons on the defensive side as well. Well... The Celtics had a hangover from that game three when OG Ananobi hit that shot with 0.5 seconds left. 0.5 seconds left, being he knocks down the shot in the corner to win game three. That's a desperation shot to from to not be able to go down 0-3 and to get a get a win 2-1 and then to come back. That's I think that brought so much confidence going into game four was OG Ananobi making that shot. That gave the Raptors so much more confidence. And I think that deflated the Celtics a little bit because they know, the Celtics know if they win that game, then they're in a great position to be in the Eastern Conference Finals, that game three. But they lose that game three on a play that was, that was a beautiful play too. Beautiful play. Marcus Gasol sets the screen, allows Anobi to come around on the baseline to knock down the shot. And Taco Fall is the one defending the inbound pass. And if everybody watches basketball, they know Taco Fall is like 7-12, according to Kyle Lowry. So, <laughs> so Kyle Lowry has to throw the ball over him to even get the shot across for them to get the shot, to even get themselves in that position. But they came out flat, the Boston Celtics did in that game four, after that game three. And, you know, the Celtics... They got outscored on second-chance points. They got out-rebounded on offensive glass. Kyle Lowry was getting his own. He was getting his own second-chance points, getting his own rebounds. So, yeah, they just looked deflated in that game for the Boston Celtics. Yeah, Jalen Brown played terribly in that game. <laughs> Made two threes out of, uh, I think it was nine, 11 or nine attempts. And yeah, just like Jalen Brown didn't, or excuse me, Jason Tatum didn't score as much as you thought he was going to score. They just, they looked out of sorts and Toronto really put their foot on, on Boston's throat. And I think they took the momentum from that game winner into that game four. Now I thought Boston was going to come back with a vengeance. They were going to be mad that they lost in a game winning shot with five tenths of a second left. And they were going to run over the, the Raptors. And so you have to credit Toronto for just really keeping their foot on the gas here. And, and I think that's credit to Nick nurse. I think it's credit to the way this team plays. And even with Pascal Siakam, absolutely being terrible at the three-point line just hitting brick after brick from outside 
he still comes, he scores his points, he gets his rebounds, and the team plays well around him. And I, and I think that's why right now it seems like Toronto is that best team to match up with Boston because they do have a lot of ways that they can attack you. Each team does on the offensive side of the ball. It's not only Jason Tatum. It's not only Pascal Siakam. These teams have three, four different ways they can attack you on the offensive side. And so I think that's, A, why we're seeing a lot of unders happen in these games. They've all hit the under so far. Um, the defense from both these teams has been tremendous. But there's been times where the offensively both these teams have struggled to get going. So it's interesting because this really is like a, a series of the minds in terms of Brad Stevens and Nick Nurse, kind of two of the top coaches in the NBA right now. They are really going back and forth with strategizing in-game adjustments and, and how they substitute and match up as well. I think in game four, Nick Nurse definitely was playing better chess in terms of the mind game with the rotations because Brad Stevens made some curious rotation decisions being if you were paying attention to the game, like, you know, Robert Williams, I love when he plays and he gets out there, right? First half, he's going to play, he's going to play relatively well. He's going to get on the glass, second chance points, look for, look for him to be around the rim. But he only played two minutes in the second half. And, you know, those first two games, he was very valuable for the Boston Celtics. And then it was weird to see Grant Williams play as many minutes as he played. And then, you know, the second half with Brad Wanamaker, he didn't see it. Did, did you really see him very much in the first series? I feel like I didn't see Brad Wanamaker that much in the first series. He like, played a little bit. I, he, he was out mostly out there defensively. I think he was he was kind of a good defensive cog there. But I mean, I <laughs> you don't want to rely the series on Brad Wanamaker. That's the that's a problem. You don't want to have to rely on Brad Wanamaker to make a difference in a game. Exactly. And so, like, he, he got to tweak his rotations just a little bit and really find a guy to the, the eight guys who are going to rotate for him, you know, in this series. Otherwise, it's going to be a little more favored towards Toronto because Nick Nurse is going to keep figuring it out and keep figuring it out. All right, let's move on to what NBA Twitter is talking about this week. What it do, baby? Yeah. There's been a lot going on on NBA Twitter, I should say so, being on Twitter most of the week. <laughs> uh, let's start with the y'all MVP from Giannis. Yeah, I don't like that one. I saw people that was trending after game three mm -hmm. talking about y'all MVP as referring to he's probably since he's probably going to win MVP this year for the second time in a row, but they may lose in the second round. Now, I believe LeBron James did that, too, as well, at some point in his career with one of his MVPs. Not to say that that's good or that's a good thing or anything, but it's happened before. I don't want him to lose in the second round. He's battling this ankle injury, which, you know, there's no excuse in the playoffs. So people really don't, they block out those type of, that type of noise. And when I say noise, I mean like the context within the series, like he's, he's bummed out on an ankle. So he's probably only playing 50%, but he's going to go out and play, you know, he's going to push the envelope and see how far his body's going to be willing to take him in this series. And so, you know, they, they got one game, he, he missed the second half. People got to realize, you know, Regular season, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Giannis Antetokounmpo is the MVP. You know, whether people like it or not, you know, he hasn't played up to expectation MVP standard in this series, but he's been giving it his all. I mean, he got to knock down his free throws, that's for sure. Yeah, he does. It's it's going to be weird. I don't know why they didn't do the MVP ceremonies before the playoffs started. Kind of a weird move, but it will be very, very funny, at least to me, to see if Giannis wins the MVP and his team gets knocked out of the playoffs, that's just incredibly ironic. And it's, it would be incredibly weird to see. And I think that would be absolutely hilarious just to give Giannis the MVP trophy after his team gets knocked out of the playoffs. That would be wild. Yeah. I just find it funny how people just say, she, I told you guys he's not good. How is <laughs> So he's not good. So all of a sudden Giannis is just not good because he's struggling in the playoffs. Like it's why that's wild. The thing yeah, is, I don't understand. <laughs> my take on Giannis is that it's not that he's not good. I just think he hasn't made the necessary adjustments that has been needed in the playoffs. I think now that he's an established star, I mean, he's the he's one MVP. People know how to defend him better. People have watched tape on him and good coaches have made good defensive moves like the Heat and Eric Spolstra on how to defend Giannis. And I don't think... He has really made any adjustments to his game, at least in this playoffs, at least since the restart, to combat all the defensive adjustments that these teams are throwing at him. And so I think that's 
been a little bit of a struggle. That's not to say he's not good. He's still and can be extraordinarily dominant. But, I mean, he, he does sometimes look like he just is trying to use his, his sheer strength and his sheer power to get to the basket where that may have worked last season or even in the middle of this season. But now that teams have watched tape and they know how to defend him better and they've come up with better schemes, it's not going to work. He's going to be called for charges more often than not. And then he finds himself in foul trouble by the end of the first quarter or the start of the second. And he has to play so much differently from that point on because he's got three or four fouls. And it doesn't seem like he's making any adjustments to that. Yeah, the refs got to chill on the charges. And I don't really, you know, they got to chill on the charges because it's like, if a guy just throws his body in front of Giannis, come on. And then if Giannis does a Euro step around the guy and they got, and another guy comes and he just throws his, but like, come on, come on refs. We got to be better. Now, sometimes Giannis does just put his head down and just, you know, just runs a guy over. He does. He do. does that a lot. But sometimes, you know, Jay Crowder or Bam out of Bayou, they may come they may just come over late. Like sometimes, like they're late, and I don't understand that. Like if Giannis does his move and he's already in the air, and then these guys come over and if they call a charge, how is that not a block? Giannis is already in the air, long long arms going to the rim, already have the ball practically in the rim already, and they call a charge because think, both guys fall down. Listen, I think the problem with Giannis too with those situations, there are certainly times where he probably shouldn't be a charge, but there are other times where he just looked like. He just looks like he's just bowling inside. He just looks like he's going to charge, lower his head, and just charge into the lane. And times where he does that, where it doesn't even look like he's trying to get to the basket, it sometimes just looks like he's trying to get the foul called. And he's a, a lot of times it looks like he's reckless. He's flailing around. He's trying to get contact. And during those times, A, I think that's a bad strategy for him. He'd be a lot better than that. He, he's a lot more skillful than just trying to get the contact in the lane. I think those are times where an offensive foul is warranted. Now, the part of his offensive game that I really don't like that he seems to just not want to stop doing is shooting three-point shots. In the playoffs, Giannis should take no more than maybe one three a game. And he is taking way more than that sometimes, especially in crunch time. What are you doing? Why are you taking three-point shots when your team is down five or six? It's the end of the third, start of the fourth, and you're running down the court taking spot-up threes. That is absurd, and that is insane that he's doing that. I don't know why Budenholzer has told him to stop. I don't know why he hasn't stopped himself, because he's not going to make them consistently. Yeah, at least, you know, the last game he shot one, he knocked it down. I just want him to shoot with confidence. As long as he shoots with confidence, that's the only thing that, that matters to me. He just has to shoot the ball with confidence. Game three, he was 0 for 6, and I look at that as, you know, the ankle. You know, and, and he didn't grimace. He didn't grimace at his ankle in game three until the fourth quarter when he attacked the rim. And he, I think he either laid the ball up or he dunked. He came down and he grimaced. That was the first time that we all saw him grimace the whole game. But up until that point, he really was not attacking the basket no more between the second and the third quarter because he had tweaked his ankle game three in like with like six minutes left in the first quarter. So the reason why you saw those six three-point attempts, and he missed all six of those, and I was extremely upset that he missed all six of them, but he didn't have any lift, and he wasn't mobile enough to really go down and attack the rim and attack the basket, and that, and that just alluded to, you know what I'm saying, the ankle. But see, nobody want, no one wants to hear about, you know, the ankle, because there's no excuse in the playoffs. Like, you got to perform, perform well. And Mike, and Mike has to do this one thing. You have to put your guy in a better position where he doesn't have to have the ball. It has to do all that dribbling and everything for him to get a bucket. Put him on a block and see what he can do down there with Bam out of Bayou. And if someone wants to come and draw a double team or whatever, we kick out and bring it back down or whatever. Just bring it back to the basic basketball. Yeah, no, you're 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 right about that. I can't I can't disagree. I think there's definitely there's definitely adjustments Budenholzer needs to make that I don't think he has uh, made at all. You put Zion Williamson here for what NBA Twitter is talking about this week. Why is NBA Twitter talking about Zion? Oh, because they thought that he should have won Rookie of the Year. Could you believe that? Could uh, you believe that people were really out there saying that Zion <laughs> Williamson should have won Rookie of the Year? I, I don't find think that's, that's insane so to me. Crazy. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think we can be more on the same page than we are about this take right here. <laughs> about how Zion absolutely should not have won Rookie of the Year. He got one vote for first place, and I would like to know who that voter was. Oh, yeah, yeah. They need to tell us who that person oh, is. Oh, they have to. you got to reveal that guy. Because that is – he needs to lose his ability to vote 
Because that's insane. That is objectively insane that you think Zion, not even having played the full season, can win Rookie of the Year over Ja Morant, who was insane for most of the full season. And in the bubble. But But I'll give him this. I'll give Zion Williamson this. He does have one thing over John Moran. And I did see this also trending on Twitter. So Zion Williamson will get his own shoe already after only playing like 28 games, if that. He's going to get his own signature shoe with the Jordan brand, Ben. Is he really? Yes, he is. The Duke star, the former Duke star, is going to get his own shoe with the Jordan brand. It's going to be the Z-Code. That's going to be the name of the shoe. Z-Code is planning to release early 2021. Have they come out with any... With what? Yeah, he hasn't even played a full season. That's, yeah, he's got a lot to live up to. He definitely does, and he's, you know, he's played well. I'm not, I'm not gonna hold it against him. He has had games where he has played very well, and you can see what NBA teams liked about him. He's explosive. He's incredible around the rim. He's incredibly fast with the ball if he gets the rebound. So there, I mean, the potential is right there. Now, the problem is, I don't know about you, but for me watching, and I think for a lot of people. Pelicans fans included Pelicans management watching him. You are so scared. He's going to injure himself because of the way he plays the way he walks and his injury history. That is, it's, it's incredibly tough. And it, it brings me back to how I watched Derek Rose play after his injury. And you're just always worried walking on eggshells as a head coach. You're always maybe thinking about taking him out for extended periods just so he doesn't get hurt. And I really hope that is not something that affects him going forward because it does really put a ceiling on the type of career that he can have. And people hate when you say that. Like, if you're a fan of Zion Williamson and you tell them that, that you're cautious of the fact that he may get hurt or his career may not be as long because of his style of play and the amount of, the amount of weight he has on his body versus the amount, of, the amount of explosiveness he has in his legs and the amount of athleticism that he has versus the amount of, like I said, 280 pounds of just force just on those legs night in and night out. I just don't know if it'll be sustainable for a 10, 15, you know, type of year career and being at a high level at least. And so it is scary to to think about. It is scary to look at because of, you know, he's so explosive. He's so explosive, Ben. He's like, you don't know what may happen. So it is like walking on eggshells. Yeah, which is, it's tough. I mean, it's tough to go about your career that way. And I saw it with Derrick Rose firsthand about how nerve wracking it is to to see someone who, you know, has a history of injury play the way that he plays. And eventually he's going to have to change up the way that he plays. If, if injuries continue to be an issue for him and, you know, you, you hope that the Pelicans have good training staff and have a good plan for him to make sure that he doesn't get hurt, but he certainly has a lot to live up to. If he's getting his own shoe line, I mean, he got a first place vote in rookie of the year. That's, that's how good people feel that he still is, even though he played half of a season. So not even, only yeah, 24 not even half games. <laughs> so it's just, there's a lot to live up to and the ceiling or the, the expectations are incredibly high for him. And, you know, I hope he meets them. I really do. It's not like we're rooting against him and he's a fun player to watch when he's at his peak, but man, there, there are a lot of barriers that I think he still has to get through in order to live up to someone who gets their own shoe line I think is I think that's fair to say yeah it is fair to say you know the conditioning level of Zion has to be there you know that was very important throughout the bubble you know him having the right proper conditioning to be able to go out there and and play those games that were every other day or every two days during the course of the bubble and so when you have that from Zion, you got to look at a full 82 stretch and wonder, will it be able to be the same thing? Would he have the conditioning to be able to sustain playing at a high level that he did when he, before the bubble had started, when he was getting like 24 and 10 and breaking these records that haven't been broken since Shaquille O'Neal, you know, those sort of things like that. And so with Zion, it's really just all about being healthy. It's not like he doesn't play bad or we want him to play bad or rooting against him. It's about, is he going to be there? The best ability is availability. All right, let's talk about officials for a sec, because this is what NBA Twitter, first of all, is always talking about officials. But I found this interesting statistic that popped up for the Rockets-Lakers game on Sunday night. And it was about Scott Foster, everyone's favorite official. Everybody and apparently, 
Everyone hates him. <laughs> everyone, everyone hates Scott Foster. And apparently Scott Foster hates the Rockets because people took statistics last night on the amount of fouls that he called against the Rockets and the Lakers. And he called 13 fouls on the Rockets and only five on the Lakers. Now, apparently uh, this has been a, this has been a continuing thing where he calls a lot of fouls against the Rockets, which as much as people hate Scott Foster, love him for that. Love him calling fouls on the Rockets. <laughs> My favorite thing. That's that's awesome. Call as many fouls on the Rockets as you want. Well, he must hate. He must don't like Chris Paul either, because Chris Paul yes. addressed Scott Foster after the Game Seven loss, which I gotta mention, Ben. That Game Seven loss, which we have, we didn't talk about. That Game Seven loss between the uh, Oklahoma City Thunder and the Houston Rockets. That kind of just took my whole basketball spirit away in terms of NBA playoffs. Like I just lost all hope. For any team that I was rooting for or was thinking that I was going to win. So my confidence level is pretty low with the Milwaukee Bucks because of what happened to the Oklahoma City Thunder. Like, I was pretty sad for a very long time about the Oklahoma City Thunder losing to the Houston Rockets because, you know, I wanted the Rockets out of the first round more than anything else in the NBA bubble. I didn't care who else won or lost. As long as the Houston Rockets were not in the playoffs, come the second round. Yeah, it was a, it was a sad day for this podcast when the Rockets won won that game seven against OKC. <laughs> I will admit it was it wasn't the the high that this podcast wanted, but we got the Rockets, we got the Lakers, and and I think as as much as I hate watching the Rockets and, and just it's just they're just they just don't play a fun type of basketball, and you can talk they to don't. so many people. I've talked to people my age who really hate the way the Rockets play. I've talked to people like my dad and people his age, you know, in their fifties who hate the way that the Rockets play. Okay, I don't what does know. He say? I mean, he just, I just don't think he likes the way Harden plays. And, and I agree with him. And there's a lot of takes that I know a lot of the older guys have about the NBA that is just, you know, old man takes that aren't correct. But there are a lot of takes about Harden that I think are correct. He's just, I just don't find it fun the way that Harden plays the game. It's not a fun way to watch basketball. I don't think constantly looking for the contact playing ISO basketball, hitting, shooting, you know, 20 step back threes a game. I know that's hyperbole, but it just doesn't seem like a fun way to watch basketball. I enjoy watching like the way Russell Westbrook plays. Sometimes I think that's a fun type of basketball, but that's not the basketball they always play. I just, the way the Rockets play just doesn't, it, it's not a conducive to an entertaining game. I don't think it, it slows down the place. They, they slog up games with their consistent attempts to get the foul. It just isn't fun in my opinion. No, it's not fun at all. And I tweeted last night. I literally watched James Harden hook his arm onto JaVale McGee literally and draw the foul and get the foul. He literally hooks his arm like we're going to go out on a date. Like, he hooked him, JaVale McGee, and got the foul. I'm like, they can't be serious. Like, this can't be life. This can't be basketball. And so, like, you know, your peers are right. Your dad's right. Like, the style of play of James Harden is literally so brutal to watch. It's so exhausting. Now, I know Russell Westbrook has not played well at all. In this series and going back to the Oklahoma City series where he wasn't playing relatively well against the Oklahoma City Thunder either. And so, yeah, he hasn't played well, but I still would rather watch Russell Westbrook do what he does and play at 100 miles an hour. He just needs to slow down a little bit, but he's going to give you this all. He's going to be a three-level scorer. He's going to shoot the three. He's going to shoot the mid-range. And he's going to attack the rim. He's going to fight hard defensively as well. And he's going to get the guys involved. So, when you got all that going for Westbrook as opposed to dribble, 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 ISO, ISO, step back three or step back, then I draw the foul by throwing my body into the, the defender. When you got things like that going on between James Harden, yeah, it's, it's terrible to watch. Yeah, it's just, it brings the generations together, I think, in terms of, I just, I don't know any non-Rockets fans who enjoy watching the Rockets. I, I don't know. Do you? No, I really don't. But uh, they do know that that it works. So they're satisfied with that. If it works for the Houston Rockets, then they're okay with it. So that's their that's their whole point that they like to get across is that it works for them. But it's it only works until it doesn't. And that's why I wanted them to lose so bad in round one. (laughs) That I think that absolutely could have changed the trajectory of the franchise if they lost in that round one, because 
you then start questioning is, is small ball the right move? I mean, who do you have to, to move away from the team or how, who do you have to bring in? And now not only do they win the series, but then they win game one against the Lakers, which no one expected them to win. So you have, exactly you have all that going, especially, especially coming off that game seven, you know, they, they was, they were in a series where it went seven games. And so you have that going on, but then you got to look at this from the Houston Rockets. Draymond Green said something that's going to be very important and it's going to suck to say, but if let's just say, cause I don't, I don't think the Lakers are going to lose this series against the Houston Rockets, but hypothetically speaking, let's say if the Rockets were to defeat this Laker team with a team with Anthony Davis, Dwight Howard, JaVale McGee, you know, three seven-footers, this may devalue the center position moving forward if P.J. Tucker led, in terms of front court, Houston Rockets eliminate the Los Angeles Lakers with small ball, it will definitely devalue the center position moving forward. Yeah, you're absolutely right. 100% right about that. And that has to do with our stat of the week. And we could, we could skip, we talked about Westbrook a little bit. I mean, he, this, this is kind of comes into our stat of the week because we have Westbrook, we have the Lakers and we have Westbrook shooting struggles. Those are all kind of blending into what we're talking about with stat of the week. And what NBA Twitter is talking about this week. So let's, let's do the stats. And the first stat we wanted to do involves the Los Angeles Lakers and small ball coincidentally enough. And the stat is the <laughs> Lakers, the Lakers are minus 11 when they play their centers in the series against the Rockets. That means they, they score 11 fewer points than their opponent. When they play a, a traditional big man in the series, they are plus four when they play small ball against the Rockets, which means, which means they score four more points than the Rockets when they play smaller lineups with no traditional center, which is very fascinating considering they have Anthony Davis, they have JaVale McGee, they have Dwight Howard who didn't play in, in game two, but he, he's been in and out with, with injuries. But it's interesting to see that they statistically, at least for this one, play worse when they play with centers than when they match up with the Rockets with, with smaller lineups. Now, how are they necessarily defining the small ball lineup? Is it Kuzma at the five and LeBron at the four, or is it AD at the five? and LeBron at the four, because if they're defining that as a small ball, then I don't really know if you really define that as small ball with AD being the five, because, because I always see like most of the time, Anthony Davis is like, if he's not the four, then he's the five. And they're doing that with like the small ball. I've yet to see LeBron James be the five in situations. They've probably put Kuzma. I feel like they put Kuzma at the five sometimes with the small ball. How do you see it? Yeah, I, I'm not I would have to see what they define as, you know, quote unquote, small ball. But my guess is it would be someone who isn't over 6'10", maybe. I think anyone under 6'10", I guess, is considered small ball. If your whole lineup is under 6'10", I would imagine that's, you know, kind of around the air of what they would be small ball. So, yeah, if you have Kuzma at the five or even have LeBron at the five and you play, you have Rondo and you have Contavious Caldwell Pope out there. I mean, I think it's there's a lot of different ways the Lakers can play that, which is interesting because. Davis dominated for the most part last night. He had a double-double, 32 points. He played really well. So it's interesting to see that the Lakers still play well when they're going smaller and, and facing off against the Rockets that way. It must be – the lineup has to be something like Marquise Morris, Kyle Kuzma, LeBron, maybe Rondo, Danny Green, or Catavis Crowell-Pope and Rondo, or Alex Caruso and Danny Green, or you know something like that. It has to yeah. be a lineup like that where they're – they're, you know, a plus four in that offensively and they're able to get more shots and get better looks in, in that regard against the Houston Rockets matching up with them in their small ball because that's the only way I can really see it being effective for it to be defined as small ball is with, like, Marquise Morris and Kuz are the ones in the front court with LeBron. That's the only way I could really see it being effective that way. I think that, I think that's probably the way to go. I just, it's wild because a, you think AD, I mean, P.J. Tucker is, play great defense on AD and AD scored no points when PJ Tucker was on him in game one. So he has played good defense in the post against AD, but the Lakers have found ways to get different defenders switched on to Davis. And that's when he's done his worst damage. So it's interesting to see that even when arguably the most dominant big man in the game today, when Anthony Davis is in the Lakers still sometimes struggle to get points. And I think yeah. the other thing is too, is 
that's kind of what the Rockets want, right? They want the Lakers to shoot twos because if they shoot threes, they're still going to outscore them that way. Even if they're making all their twos, Houston only needs to make, you know, 50, 60% of their threes and they're still going to outscore them. Yeah, both big men in the last game for the Los Angeles Lakers were negative. So Anthony Davis, despite having 34 and 10, he were he was a negative seven. You know, did JaVale McGee play eight minutes, negative eight, you know, minus eight. So, you know, those guys were effective in terms of the whole game productively versus the Houston Rockets because of that small ball. And so when you look at it like that and you see the devalue from the uh, defensive aspect of the Lakers and how they can't keep up with them, those bigs, they got to be better in terms of getting getting out and, you know, contesting those three-point shots or getting out on those switches and rotating. And Anthony Davis just has to move his feet. And I saw different points of the game then where Anthony Davis can be way more effective offensively. He can really wear out P.J. Tucker and get him in foul trouble. Now, don't get me wrong, P.J. Tucker has a nice, solid frame, right? He's pretty solid frame to be a guy to be 6'5", 6'6", playing the center position. But he has to, Anthony Davis has to know that when he catches that ball inside that, that mid-circle area and he turns and he fades away, he needs to be two feet closer to the rim. I was saying that last night. He just needs to be two feet closer to the rim for that shot to be more consistent and more effective. That's going to draw more double teams. And as long as you can get that double team deeper in the post, you have a better chance for those kickout threes. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right about that. And when you talk about small ball for the Lakers – Let's look at it for the Rockets, because that's our other stat of the week. And it has to do with Russell Westbrook. And the stat is, out of the 77 players who have taken at least 30 jump shots in the playoffs, Westbrook is dead last in shooting efficiency. He only shoots an effective field goal percentage of 30% in his jump shots during the playoffs. He's made 10 of 38 jumpers so far in the playoffs. And we were talking about the game on Sunday. He airballed a jumper. He just... He hasn't really been playing well since he's come back from injury to begin with, but his jump shooting and his three-point shooting have been awful. Yeah, it has. It's definitely. And then like yesterday, I, like I told you yesterday, I seen him airball, and I was like, okay, yeah, this isn't looking too good. Once I, once I saw that, I was just like, yeah, it's bad. I don't know if it's the quad injury and he's, if it's still lingering and he just can't get that lift off, the, off his jump shot because he's, fly, he's flying up and down the floor. Oh, like he's still doing that. He's still Russell Westbrook. He's still going 100 miles an hour. But I don't know if he's he stops on a dime to really take that jump shot. You know that mid range shot that he loves so much. He's he's been clanking them. You know, it's, like you, it's been a pile of bricks since. And like I said, he even airballed. And so I don't know if he has that lift in his jump shot right now. Yeah, it just seems like he's almost playing too fast for himself, which we've seen in the past do that. And and he just plays a little too fast than what maybe his mind can keep up with. And he'll throw the ball away. But we saw that, especially against OKC a little bit, where he was playing incredibly recklessly with his passes. Um, his passing was off for a lot of the end of that series and a little bit to start this Lakers series where he's just playing a tad too fast for how everyone else is really playing in the moment. And shooting-wise, he just keeps taking shots that he's not going to make. The Lakers are incredibly okay with Russell taking threes. They, they are not going to pressure up on him. They're going to say, here you go. Take the three. We're okay with it. Because if you make it, you're not going to make it consistently. So they're okay with that. Yeah, that's so he, what I was thinking, too. He, he just needs to be better at, at attacking the rim, I guess. That, that just needs to be the game that he does consistently. And, yeah, you know what? And like you said, the Lakers, they're very satisfied with Russell Westbrook taking seven threes. If Russell Westbrook takes seven threes in the contest, they're satisfied with that. Even if he does make three of them, they're still satisfied that he settled four to three as opposed to attacking them and putting those uh big men in position where they're they're out of play and now you got those three point shots for PJ Tucker and Robert Covington or Eric Gordon in the corner. So once you once you can limit and have him settle Russell Westbrook for those three point shots you're in a good position if you're the Lakers. All right, Zach, overreaction? Or no. Or no. Now, Nets, the new Brooklyn Nets, they hired Steve Nash, Hall of Famer, future Hall of Famer, Steve Nash, two-time MVP winner, just all around, you know, stellar player. He has been hired as a head coach. No coaching experience whatsoever, but that's okay because he had a relationship with uh, Kevin Durant when during their time with the Golden State Warriors, built the relationship, you know, and he really helped uh, Kevin Durant 
you know, during his time with the Warriors, you know, in terms of just footwork and, you know, offensive abilities and you know, just adding more to Kevin Durant's pa- his package. And so his offensive weapon. And so I just look at it as, you know, it's a solid hire, but there was some noise. You know, you know, whenever you get a new coach, there's always going to be some noise. And so the overreaction for this week was, and I'm going to ask you, Ben, is, you know, Steve Nash getting this job with no, you know, not necessarily any head coaching experience, but, you know, he's been around the NBA long enough. Was this hire an example of white privilege? So I think it's interesting. I think white privilege in terms of would a black coach with the experience that Steve Nash has be hired directly as a head coach? I, I don't think so. I, so I think in that respect, I think that is, you know, the white privilege that Steve Nash gets as just being the white guy with high IQs. You know, you hear that all the time. The the white players have the high IQs. And I think people look at him and say, you know, this guy had a, you know, quote unquote, high IQ when he played. He must make a good head coach. He doesn't need to have any assistant coaching experience or lower level head coaching experience. Um, and I And obviously the fact that he knows Durant. And the fact that he helped Duran and, and he has those connections and, and they approved this, that I'm sure helps him a lot. But you just you wouldn't see a black coach who has had no head coaching experience get a head coaching job in the NBA. I just you wouldn't get that. Now, is it all completely white privilege? I would say it's more like even like that internal racism thing where you look at, you know, people see the white guys as the smarter ones and they see them as the people who are fine taking over head coaching job if they were good in the NBA. I think it's more internal racism type of thing where other than white privilege, I don't know. I, I, I could be wrong on that, but it seems like more of that to me than even just strictly white privilege. Now, when that came out, right, the whole white privilege thing, there were some back and forth and I saw other people talking and, you know, other coaches that got addressed and, you know, as to, you know, shut down the whole white privilege thing. And for me, it was an it was an example of you know today's white privilege, but it's not to the extent as everyone else may put it out to be. And what I and what I mean by that is, you know, with a black coach get this job, he wouldn't get this job in terms of the situation. Now I'm looking at it from a situation perspective. Now with a black coach get this job, meaning a Kevin Durant and a Kyrie with championship aspirations, no, I don't think he would get that job. But that doesn't mean a black coach wouldn't get a job with no experience. Now, a lot of people immediately drop those bombs. Like, oh, well, what about Derek Fisher to the New York Knicks or or Doc Rivers to Orlando Magic? And I think there, were, there was another one, too, as well. I'm like, it's all about situation. Context is everything. So you're throwing a, you're throwing a new coach like Derek Fisher with the New York Knicks. We flame the New York Knicks as much as possible on this podcast, do we not, Ben, for their dysfunction. So it doesn't matter, black, white, who's the coach over there, as long as the owner is still the owner of the New York Knicks, they're always going to be a dumpster fire. So it doesn't matter what coach, any guy can try to be their first head coach, be the first coach there for New York Knicks. He's probably going to struggle because they refuse to do things right from the front office perspective. So everything is case by case and situational. Now, or the Orlando Magic job, when Doc Rivers received that job a while ago, was that job very appealing? No, it probably wasn't. Shaq wasn't there anymore. You didn't have Penny Hardaway or anything like that. And, you know, it wasn't it wasn't fit out to be like that. But he ended up becoming coach of the year with the Orlando Magic. So everything is situational and case by case for me. Because, you know, opportunities do happen, but they they do happen for white coaches, obviously, more than black coaches. And I think laying that out on the front, laying that out on the table first is, you know, most important. But right. I don't think so, it was that I don't think it was severe as most people thought. So if I'm so if I'm getting this right, what you're saying is that it seems like in the case of it being, you know, white privilege and you put the Stephen A. Smith quote where he said black folks with no resume are not getting a job like that, which I think is a hundred percent correct. I, I, you know, I think a, a former player, former player who's black with no coaching experience, they're probably not going to get a head coaching job right away. Like what Steve Nash did now. But I think what you're saying is while that is true, this specific situation might not be very much proof of white privilege. Is that kind of what you're saying in a way? Exactly. So it, it, it it's it's white privilege, but this situation itself, right. not it's not as severe as you would see like 
Right. Like, like, let's say, what other coach I can give an, give an example for? So giving, so like a lot of people didn't like when Steve Kerr got the job for the Warriors. Right. No, no coaching experience, but he had the front office job with the Phoenix Suns. So you know he had been around, obviously played with the Bulls. So he had obviously been played with the Spurs. So he had obviously been around basketball long enough and been around great coaches long enough to know, you know, what it takes to be, you know, a head coach. Same thing with, uh, what's his name? That's with the Sacramento Kings right now. He's probably going to be out his way out of there in the next two to three years. Uh, Walton, right. Luke Walton. So you got, yeah. so you got Luke Walton, right? He takes over for Steve Kerr when he gets sick and they go on that crazy run. But a lot of people say, well, it was more so the team than it was him. And now he gets the Kings job and he's there with the Kings first time being, you know, his own head coach, but he had that experience. And so it's always to me, just a case by case situation. Now, I thought about this. Now, tell me what you think about this, Ben. Maybe they didn't call uh, Tyron Lue, right? Maybe they didn't call Coach Lue, you know, the assistant coach for the Clippers. Maybe they didn't call him because what if Kyrie left the, the Cleveland Cavaliers because he didn't have a relationship with Coach Lue anymore? Well, like, what if that's the case and why the Brooklyn Nets didn't call to get him on the phone and see if they could set up an interview with Tyron Lue? Like, what if right. that's the case? Yeah, you don't know. That's true. I mean, you don't know what coaches they considered before Steve Nash and what. I mean, there may have been black coaches on their radar that they talked to that KD and Kyrie didn't want. I, I, I don't know. I just I don't know if we can make that assumption. And I don't know if we'll know until there's a report comes out of the other coaches they considered. Exactly. All right, we'll move on to our last segment. Our picks. What's uh what's the picks for this week? What what, what are the you doing? Picks, the picks for this week. I'm just gonna go out and just say it. Lakers beat the Houston Rockets in this series four to two. They beat them in six. Right now, the Lakers are tied with the Houston Rockets at one game apiece after they won their game Sunday night over the Houston Rockets by the score of 117-109. They led by as many as 21 points in this game. But you know the Houston Rockets shoot a ton of threes, so they fought back in the game and even took the lead before LeBron went to LeBron mode in the fourth quarter and, you know, iced the game away. And so, yeah, you know, I'll give the – I'll give this series to the Los Angeles Lakers. They reached the Western Conference Finals. I'm going to say Celtics in six. Ooh-wee! That's too good. Okay. So so how you how you going to map this one out? I think they win the game. Uh, I think they win today. Okay. So when this comes out tomorrow, I may already sound like an idiot, which is always fun. <laughs> always a good thing to do that. I think they win today. Raptors win the next one. And then the uh, the Celtics close it out in game six. Okay. But again, I'm going to sound like an idiot once this comes out on Tuesday and the Raptors won tonight when we recorded. <laughs> <laughs> now you got to remember it's tied 2-2. So for in order for it to be over in six, you know, the Celtics, they got to win two games in a row. They do. Well, I, I listen, I think if it's 2-2, the Celtics win tonight, make it 3-2. Oh, you're right. Yeah, they got to win two in a row. So I'll take that back. Celtics in six, two in a row. <laughs> you know what? I'll say seven. I'll say the Celtics, that goes seven. So they're going to fight back and forth, and it's going to go a full-out seven. My question to you, and we'll we'll save this for the next podcast, but I'll ask you this. If the, if the Miami Heat move on with the Bucks, right, who do they fit? Who do they match up better against? Just answer that one question, and we'll go into details next week. But who do the Miami Heat match up better against, the Boston Celtics? or Toronto Raptors. And I want to know why next week. Uh, I think they match up better probably with the Raptors. Okay. And so that'll conclude this edition of the points in the paint podcast. We'll find out why next week, if the Milwaukee Bucks can't find a way back to fight back in this series against the Miami heat, we'll find out next week who the Miami heat will match up against between the Boston Celtics and Toronto Raptors, and who fa- who do they favor and match up well against in that series in the Eastern Conference Finals. This has been another edition of Points in the Paint podcast. Make sure you follow us at Points Paint. Follow our usernames on Twitter as well, at Zach Badgerhouse and Ben Winstein on Twitter. Follow Stadium, too, as well. And follow Shams 
for all your latest and updated news in terms of the NBA. And make sure you follow the other podcasts and subscribe and listen to Trash and Treasure presented by Amina and Felder. They come out every Thursday. Great content, exclusive interviews, and you'll hear from us next week.